so he's like love god with your spiritual knowing it's not and, and that's what peter picks up on in, in the letters when he uses it it's it's a way of knowing that's almost intuitive that is ability to perceive something more going on in in the world whether it's a, the tree being painted uh, where guardini looked at it or it's reading text and going uh, the you know the bible or it's being in your bedroom and being overcome with uh, the sense of, of god's holiness robert flanagan has served as an episcopal priest since 2003 He's chaplain at General Theological Seminary in New York and serves as dean's advisor at Virginia Theological Seminary. We speak today about his 2022 book, The Letters of an Unexpected Mystic, Encountering the Mystical Theology in 1st and 2nd Peter. We discuss Peter's epistles to be sure, but attend especially to how Peter's mystical theology bears on modern life and on what it teaches us about what it means to encounter God and what that encounter may entail. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Uh, Bob Flanagan, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, Matthew, it's great to see you. It's been a while. It has been a little while, longer than I would like. Um, we're going to discuss your 2022 book uh, titled Letters of an Unexpected Mystic, uh, which is a book I really like. It, but it's also, I should say uh, to our listeners up front, it presents a little challenge for the podcast uh, in kind of two senses. First, the podcast is, is, it's really a podcast about the ways that spiritual life and experience manifest themselves within ideas or within literary texts, philosophy, theology, and more. That is, it's a podcast, first and foremost, about our experience of sacred things. And your book is about sacred things, but it's got some ideas in there that are important to communicate about, about sacred things. So it's a, this is a discussion today of ideas and theology as much as or more than it's about uh, spiritual experiences as such. Um, Second, the podcast um, is an ecumenical uh, podcast, which is to say it takes up facets of Christian life and experience that resonate across different faith traditions. So it's a podcast about the shared spaces of Christian life. And in the case of your book, there's lots of shared space uh, with my own uh, religious tradition, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But there are some other facets of it that may differ here and there uh, in small ways from the views that my own faith tradition holds. So there may be not just ecumenical, but also perhaps interfaith dialogues, a discussion of differences as well as points of, of uh, shared um, faith and, 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 and belief. Um, having said all that, I find the things you discuss in your book to be significant for their bearing on spiritual life and experience. They resonate, I think, across different Christian denominations, including my own. This is why I'm grateful for your book, uh, Bob, and for your friendship, and I'm grateful uh, to have a chance to talk with you today. Uh, so thank you again. Oh, well, you're welcome. I'm glad, super glad to be here. Perhaps you could tell us at the outset um, how you came to this topic, right? Why it seemed right to you to discuss spiritual experience, or as you often call it in the book, this mystical theology, by way of Peter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here's here's kind of how it all comes together. I'm finishing up my uh, my doctoral paper, and uh, as I'm, I think, like, not unusual to many, uh, many folks that, uh, that pull this together is you're left with some questions. You know, you're left with, um, you know, you spent 100, 200 pages of, of uh, writing and research uh, and, and hours upon hours of research. And then you come back and say, OK, wow, you know, I didn't I didn't get there. There's some more that I found here. And in and in 
my process of and and my thesis it really was looking at could uh, uh, could people of faith share their mystical experiences their ex what i would call uh, experience of god and the holy um as a as a short catchphrase and and in doing so what limited them and what what ignited their their desire to share you know and and so we that was the the result of the thesis and going through kind of saying okay well can we can we ground this it, 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 can i ground this biblically is this something that can say okay it is as a person of faith to say all right i, I want to tie myself down to something structural within my faith and and that and led in part to taking a look at at where at, for the, certainly the christian for christians in the early christian church where do we see mystical experiences where do we see the interaction of god and and the holy with people with with the early church you know, disciples post resurrection uh folks and so that automatically leads one into, into the acts of the apostles Albert Schweitzer writes a book about the mysticism uh, of of Paul, and um, and and it's a fascinating book. and And I read, you know, familiar with it, and read it, and and kind of see could see the Pauline Pauline in there. But interestingly, right, the Acts of the Apostles have two significant significant uh, events in them. Uh, in chapters nine and chapters ten, one is very famously Paul's Paul's Damascus Road event, you know, where he's struck down and blinded, and hears Jesus's voice, and gee, that has all the marks of a of a mystical uh, experience. And then you flip the page to the next chapter, and there's Peter on a rooftop, and all of a sudden he's in a trance. And we can get into what you know, kind of the significance of the Greek word behind that. But his fall is usually translated into trance, and he has a vision, and that vision changes changes his outlook and what he's doing. And so, a lot of and so from that, I said, all right, I you know, what's going on with Peter, and is there more there? And then looking at quickly, spending time with Peter one and Peter two was like, well, Peter actually has a fair bit to say about mysticism and and what it is and it's it parallels paul but it's different and i think it's richer i think it's much it's much more robust and and really exciting kind of almost in a sense of literary you know kind of uh, uh metaphors and illusions that he draws on i i really appreciate that uh, in your book and you know one of the things i love about it is that really great observation you make about that difference between Paul and Peter. You know, Paul is such an influential force you know, on Christianity. Uh, clearly, Peter is too, but you know, Paul's writings are so influential. But, but that experience of Paul's on the road to Damascus, is, again, it's, 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 this, it's this instantaneous transformative experience. In your book, you talk about how Peter's experience, though it is remarkable, this vision he has, you know, these, you know, these, this sheet dropping down on these beasts and Peter rise, kill, eat, etc. Um, but, the, it, but the experience for Peter is not so much instantaneous. It kind of it has to dawn on him a bit over time, which means in a lot of ways his experience is more relatable for mm -hmm. a lot of us who try to have an experience of God in the holy, as you say. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it, Peter, Peter is this, you know, here, let's, let's, let's give a little kind of what happens to Peter, you know, kind of right from his denial of Jesus and, and, and then kind of, because Peter is not the sole focus of the Acts of the Apostles, it's still about Jesus. And it's still about the work of Jesus as it's rel as it's growing into a a group of people that are going to share that message, right? So so we see Peter there on Pentecost saying, "Hey, giving this wonderful speech, really rousing, moving people to to change their hearts." He has this uh, later later on. He has this fabulous way of healing people even by his shadow you know he's that that kind of has it this kind of power to him he he has two people a husband and wife die in front of him you know because they did they lied uh to the spirit and they die and and then kind of peter's on the road to you know to joppa Peter's on the Peter's on the road. He's he's not in Jerusalem. He's the head of the church, but he's not there. And then very quickly, within a few chapters, Peter comes back and says, "Hey, church, not as not in the role of a leader, but as somebody who's coming back into it to say, I'm seeing these things. Is this okay with you? Like, let me convince you. But it's not as one. He's no. And and who's the head of the church? James's brother of Jesus, and and it has been noted that it's the bloodline that that it's so human, right? Mm -hmm. It's we like all kings, we go back to the bloodline and go, okay, Jesus's brother becomes the head of the local church in Jerusalem. You know, the the church, not Peter. Peter's kind of lost his church, and he's on the road, and he's wandering, and he's doing some good, healing some people, but he's in this on the roof of a of a tannery which is not a lovely place to be in the middle of the day period it's the smells <laughs> right and he has this vision right and it's the most unusual place you think about it. it it is not the place to have a divine vision right it should be in a grand worship space in a in that kind of thing not in this rooftop in the middle of the day while he's waiting for for something to eat yeah, and one of the things that in, in, in my own faith tradition, the, the idea is that Peter always remained the head of the church as long as he was alive. But as you point out in the biblical record, and a lot of scholars think it wasn't that way, that James become the brother of Jesus as the head of the church in Jerusalem. In any event, what you see with Peter is, yeah, there's something very... Um, that the, the, the place where he has that vision of these beasts, which gives, ultimately is kind of the basis for taking the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, is not a, um, a glamorous space. Uh, uh, this tannery <laughs> would not be associated with, with appealing aromas, right? Shall we say it's an interesting place to have the kind of vision which shows that God, these things can happen to us any place. In your, in your book, you come at this, though, the whole thing by way of an interesting... Um, uh, kind of a, a, a theological idea. I wanted to unpack this a bit because it's an important one. Um, you come at it by way of the idea of threefold seeing, right? This right. is an idea developed by the mid-20th century Catholic priest, theologian, and philosopher Romano Gardini. Um, now, we could really, if we wanted to, you know, Bob, get into the weeds of Gardini's work, which uh, probably is not right for this podcast, but I do have some questions for you about this approach as threefold seeing. 
which I find, I think, important to what you're arguing here, important to Peter's experience. Perhaps I could begin by coming at the subject this way. Um, you point out, and this is a very good point you make, that one traditional view of mysticism is that it proceeds through three stages, right? There's a, the first stage, of, it's a purgative stage where you know, we shed ourselves of false perceptions. Second, there's an illuminative stage, you know, where, where one's filled with new knowledge of God. And third, there's this unitive stage in which one draws closer to God or even becomes one with God. But as you point out, and this is a great point you make, there are some challenges with, um, with that view of one leads to the next that leads to the third that Gardini's own threefold approach circumvents. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I'm reminded, you know, some of this is unfolding as, you know, at the time that you and I met in Rome. So, um, and, and so I'm reminded of that. I can't help but think of that. There's a conference, so, by the way, in 2019. That's where I, I met Bob. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, there I'm learning about Guardini and I am in search of a really a methodical way to say, how do we look at scripture in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, in an important way, right? So there, there we could, we can read scripture. There's no doubt, and and kind of intellectually bring our mind to it and think, okay, we can pray over the scriptures and and ask, you know, ask for divine wisdom. You know, either bring our reason or prayer life. There's the tradition of lectio divina, which is that prayerful reading of the scripture. And yet, I was, you know, for an academic paper you know in an academic setting was like i need something more rigorous i need uh, it's something that's that can hold up uh, that's that has the the structure around it that's going to be able to hold up to a um a, a really strong and deep examination of scripture and hearing uh, about gordini's threefold seeing at that conference was like okay this this has potential and so in that is this sense of and and I think we we um, you you've you've noted it is like how you know why does this why why does this all matter is we can we can look at you know in our modernistic way there's this sense this theory of deconstructionism right we like to kind of tear everything down look at it analyze it and then perhaps put it back together and a lot of people through um, uh, through formal uh, criticisms. Have done that over the over the um, over the decades. Certainly, um, to to the Bible, and there's a kind of a modern, uh, uh, you know, starting probably mm, mid 1800s forward. There's a tradition of of exegeting the Bible through almost a scientific method. And way I look at that, and my as I write in my book of the experience I had that was so kind of left me. Uh, uh, so missing is that I kind of think of that approach and it has value. It, it, it's the same approach of that a mechanic might take apart a car or car engine and say, okay, here are all the pieces and examine them and see how each piece works and should one piece be replaced and why is this, why does this plug matter and why does uh, you know this spring matter and in, in the engine, you know, and, and the cylinders matter, you know, and so that's one approach, and that's my interpretation of of uh, the literary criticism that kind of been applied to the Bible in this form. However, that's not the only way to kind of build and build or create something, and then to look at something. And I and I talk about the the bread. Um, 
when you bake a loaf of bread, right, you use different parts that are necessary. You know, you, you need sugar and flour and water and 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 then importantly, you need yeast and how it's all combined and worked together in that process all comes together to what we could would define as bread. The end of it is, okay, so now we have bread and we want to kind of look at it, the bread, and we cut it open, but we don't see the parts anymore. You know, we don't see the sugar. We might be able to taste it. We don't see the salt that we added. We don't see the, the yeast. We can see the effect of the yeast. And so what Guardini is saying in, in, in the threefold seeing and the approach of the threefold seeing is, is, is let's appreciate the bread for what it is instead of trying to take it apart to go, oh, here's the sugar or here's the, you know, here's, or here are the car parts. It's, it's art, text can be equally uh, analyzed and lifted up through a method by which we we allow it to speak to us as much as we speak to it and yeah and see to it yeah good the way i think about it so 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 the guardini what he's again the three parts the three the threefold saying is that there are three different kind of yeah. categories here you have the in relation to like a painting you have the artist that makes the painting right you have the work itself the thing that's painted then you have a beholder a spectator of that painting and and right. and and for him each of these three bear on the other they rely on the other and what he's kind of trying to get at is how it is that a larger experience of the meaning of the work a work in which something of the nature of god ultimately is manifest is dependent on the relation between those three so instead of going from the one to the other and then the third, they're all bound up there together, which is why your bread analogy is important. It's not like, you know, I don't eat a piece of bread and say, oh, I think I just got a bite of yeast. That's what I say, that's not very good bread, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's the combination. And for you, the, what I like about what you go with this in the book is that you talk about these threefold aspects of a, of a mystical encounter with the scriptural text. There's the beholding part, the dianoia part, and the metanoia part, right? Yeah. So let's take these one by one. What does it mean to, as you understand it, to behold a text of scripture. Right. So back up for a second. So, so what I, when I come to the threefold seeing is at the, at the part, there's the, the part that you described, kind of the relationships, and then there's the process of knowledge, you know, like how do we know something? How do we, how do we know? So this is, so beholding dianoia and metanoia is a process by which we, we come to know and we come to to gain knowledge. So so to behold, it is and and for those that are you know whether one is um, Jewish or or Christian, you're gonna you'll appreciate this in terms of of uh, the translations of scripture. Uh, certainly in the in the Christian translations, we have a variety of of translations of of the sacred texts, and and. Over the years, editors have made choices that have brought us to the sense of, of it makes it more readable, a little easier to deal with if we don't have the same words repeating all the time. Uh, and so if we go to the King James Version, we will see hundreds and hundreds of times the word behold. And behold is, is a, a word of significance that says stop. Sometimes it's low. Uh, we we use that um, won't won't be see, but it's 
behold. And there's it, it is meant to point out to us that something different is happening here. Yeah, and okay. so beholding is in its in the basic sense is that is that ability to pause and to stop and then to consider, wow, something different is happening. And so it's it's St. Francis talking with the lepers. It's it's Augustine and his mother having their experience. It's it's um, just over and over again with mystics being able to intuitively often for them, but to say, wow, okay, something is happening here that I need to stop my daily life to appreciate. And it's something that's, that is different. Sometimes that's dramatic when it hits. And other times it's a softer voice. It can be a variety of ways. Okay, so behold means, you know, kind of identify, stop, pay attention. Something important is about to be said or about to be experienced, felt, et cetera. Okay, good. Dianoia, the next kind of one of these three, what role does that play in your understanding of, of how we come yeah. to this mystical knowing? And what does Dian Dianoia even mean? So Dianoia is an unusual word in the Bible. I mean, it's it, but it's a word that Peter uses. And importantly, it's a word that Jesus Christ uses, and 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 Jesus uses that a pivotal point in the Scripture. He has somebody who comes up to him and says, uh, you know, teacher, rabbi, um, can you uh, uh, t tell us what are the greatest commandments? You know, tell us what's what are the most important things out of the Torah, uh, out of the Jew Jewish Scriptures that that we really that I really should follow. And uh, Jesus says, well, as we often as Christians will know, is say the first one is to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Yeah, heart, might, mind, and strength, we say, yeah. Right, right. But might is the translation from the Deuteronomy. So Jesus stops and he makes, he deposits dianoia there instead. And he says, so, I mean, he's speaking in, in Hebrew. He would have used a different word likely, right? But it's come through us as translation as not might, but dianoia, which is a spiritual sense of knowing. So he's like, love God with your spiritual knowing. It's not, and, and that's what Peter picks up on in, in the letters when he uses it. It's, it's a way of knowing that's almost intuitive that is ability to perceive something more going on in in the world, whether it's a paint, the tree being painted, uh, where Guardini looked at it, or it's reading text and going uh, the Bible, you know, the Bible, or it's being in your bedroom and being overcome with uh, the sense of, of God's holiness. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a really important insight. So, so that you know, um, um, love God with all your heart and with all your some capacity to recognize something. Right, so it's right. like a might. It's like it's like it's like love God in such a way that you can recognize God as God, right? That you can yeah. sort of that you can yeah, discern this, right? It, which I guess is a, a great insight in your book. The third of these terms, metanoia, is commonly translated as repentance. Um, is that right. what you mean by the term? Is do you like that uh, that that, yeah, that translation? So, yeah. So I take it a, I take it a, a little bit differently, a little bit more, uh, perhaps more literally, um, to the Greek. You know, so it's meta and noia. So it's a change. It's like a, some would say it would be, we often say, well, it's turning around, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's meta in that, in that large sense of knowing that there's a new way, a way of knowing. And so meta, again, noia, as that comes to us in the word knowledge. Um, so it's this sense of knowing 
And, and so I take it not as that yet yeah, repentance is something that will follow from, you know, dianoia can lead to repentance. Metanoia is really at the structure of it because not always does does a spiritual encounter lead one to what we want to say is you know more peace and more love and more hope and more um, more groundedness in in God in in God God's goodness. Sometimes sometimes people will take take a a uh, understanding you know of a divine interaction and drive it toward division and divide you know and and despair and and hopelessness you know and not this sense of of fulfilling so it's interesting that ultimately i think metanoia comes down to this it's it's the it's god's respect for the human agency mm -hmm. to allow hey okay you've had this experience what are you going to do with it yeah good you can know? i speak to that for a second and you tell me if it yeah. sounds right to you. you you gave an example of jonah in your book right of the classic case where inspiration comes and the person receiving it doesn't necessarily respond in a way that is uh, all that receptive to god right away and in my own experience i think about things on occasion i felt that i've been asked to do like in my in the church setting, for example, there have been assignments that have been given to me by leaders in the church that I think were inspired, but just because they were inspired doesn't mean I was all that eager to accept some of them right away, right? And so an initial call does, is not always met with enthusiasm. It can be met with some resistance, mm -hmm. uh, it can be met with some um, uh, feelings of inadequacy, right? It, it, it's not all about feeling uh, this 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 warm sense of reassurance that all will be well and that all manner of things will be well. It's different from that. And metanoia is almost like it's a way of saying it's it's like a, a way of coming to oneself. It's like a it's like a, an under it's like a knowledge of knowledge. It's a it's saying okay, you know, I, I, reflecting on this, it occurs to me that this actually is a good and a better thing or a thing I've been asked to do is a good thing. And so it's 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 coming through a process to be able to recognize what is divine in the ways that we encounter God or that he comes to us. Is that is that a fair interpretation, Bob, of what you mean? Yeah, I think, uh, so I would, um, let me give you this example and kind of coming at it as, as you know, as an Episcopalian, one of the things that's kind of quirky about our denomination as, as Christians is that we don't have, we don't have a fixed set of, we're not, we're not a doctrinal people like, and I don't, I don't mean that we're not, we are believers of creed and we are readers of the Bible and we're deeply interested in prayer, but we don't have, for instance, as Lutherism has a really distinct set of, of teachings that we say, but these are what we follow or, or those in the Catholic tradition may say that they're Thomists and they follow Thomas Aquinas and he has a very structured set of teachings that they follow. You know, we were we our tradition, as it's received into the American uh, uh, the, uh, to America, comes from from England and it came out of 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 the English Civil Wars, where they're fighting over religion and and who has the right doctrine and who has the right belief and and so fi it finally gets settled to say well. Some of both is right, but what's most important is 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 our prayer book. And I say that because 
within all of our within our tradition and within our worship there is a deep understanding of what what we would call gift and reception that that god gifts us things yet we are free to receive them and so, so somebody can uh, you know we say somebody can can in our receive communion and one person is saying wow this is the most moving experience i've ever had and the other person's like yeah maybe maybe not you know it maybe doesn't have any change involved and so that's why i think it, for for way i see this is and metanoia is so much it the the poor choice on the human side does not negate the the beauty and wonder of the divine gift it's just we're humans and god's going to be patient with us to receive to receive it and it may take some time I, that's one of the points that I think um, I really appreciate about about your faith tradition, and and in a lot of ways it's very similar to mine. That, that respect for agency, mm-hmm. right, um, and that reception that 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 was well, so it's a gift and reception. Those are the categories you use there, right? Yeah, yeah kind of call and response. It's I mm-hmm. think that's 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 really good, and it comes out in your in your book. I wonder if I can read with you a passage in Second Peter that you comment on in your in your book here. And I happen to have in front of me the King James translation, not the, the newer by standard or another translation. So I'll just read it in the King James. If you want to sort of bring attention to different words, it's fine. It's, it's, it's the passage in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Uh, this is uh, oft quoted in my own uh, religious uh, yeah. tradition. So let me read this here. Um, he says, Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and a virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I really like your reading of this. This this passage here is a kind of a chain of virtues, as you mm-hmm. call it, right? And you make the important point that contrary to one way of reading these verses, the logic in this chain does not really proceed from internal uh, traits like faith or you know to external virtues like love for others but that there's something kind of more holistic about how to understand all this can you explain um your interpretation of these of this passage yeah i think the really important thing to catch first is that i don't see you know often we want to be progressive or progressing to something we want to be okay um saint john of the cross you know we climb the mountain to to be with god and he talks about talks about that journey and about how we have to unload ourselves to be able to be there in that sense of it. Peter, I think, and, and I think this fits within his life. You know, there's some question about did Peter author this letter or not, but regardless, it's somebody who knows Peter well and well enough that want that the, that the name, you know, it's the letter is named for him. And, and so for, for, in Peter's life, and, and I think so true in many people's experiences, we may move from faith to the next, to the next, to the next, but it, that it's a chain that's connected so that when we get to the end, it leads us back into more faith. And then the sense of virtue, I look at it as kind of, is I use the Greek word, uh, erite, and to, to, to really say it's not so much virtue, but it's the being empowered, the 
having the divine power to act. It's being moved to act. And so it, that sets it up as a as these as these not as steps to achieve something, but as a journey of one's life and to and to follow this path, if you will, but but that there's this sense of growth that continually can happen. Because I think I think you know my experience certainly as a as a pastor is is I don't see a lot of people kind of putting a, a flag in the ground saying I'm done, I'm finished, I've grown, you know, and now I am. You know, somebody might say, well, I'm I'm a mature Christian or I'm a fully mature Christian. So meaning you're adding on to it. And I think the way that Peter would say is, well, of course you are, but you're always growing and you're always adding. Yeah, I love that spiral staircase heading hopefully upward. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where, where you aren't done needing to learn more about faith. <laughs> You know, just because you may have exercised it at one capacity or one way doesn't mean you don't have more to learn about it, more you need to to, to be able to be better at at, at both both uh, living by it and, and, you know, kind of of exercising its precepts, et cetera. So your vision is really good. And what you you remark in here, I also, that really resonates with me. I thought this is really, really insightful of you, Bob, but that Peter's second letter, you you say, outlines a spiritual vision, or we may Mm -hmm. become shares of the divine nature, as you put it. This is where we not only draw nearer to God, but become in some ways more like God. Can you explain what you mean by that principle? But and these yeah. more than you just already did? Yeah, so I would so I'll dr- quickly draw a contrast between um, between between Peter and Paul, right? Because a a, a uh, well-read Christian will, will say, well, Paul talks about God within and 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 say, yes, Peter talks about it a little bit differently in that we are sharers of the divine nature and that we can become yes we can become more like God we can we, we can grow in our lives to to bring us more in line with what God wants for us um, and that expression may be internal and and may we may feel God within us but it's not a sense of completeness, but it's also a sense of growth and, and a sense of, of, of being able to use the gifts that God has given us, right? And to share those the, of powers of creation, the, the share the, the powers of, of uh, living a good and ethical life and acting on behalf of God and the learning more. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And and your book does a really lovely job, I think, of <clears throat> explaining how this comes about, right? This this process whereby we hopefully grow in our capacity to discern God's presence and to sort of uh, grow in how we acquire um, you know, kind of the kinds of virtues we associate with the discipled Christian. You know, I think this is an important thing that you that you get at here, and and you, and you end the book by talking about kind of the importance of this kind of approach to our present era. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about this in conclusion. You know, you quote the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner's really remarkable 1971 observation. I thought this is, in setting it in time that way, is really striking. And and I'm quoting you, quoting him. Uh, he writes, "The devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic." one who has experienced something, or they will cease to be anything at all, which is kind of neat, they will cease to be Christian. Um, witnessing people, especially millennials, Gen Z, like desert institutional religion, I'm struck by how prophetic Rahner's insight was. 
What do you think gave Rahner that insight back in 1971? Well, I think I, well, I think part of this, and we're going to come back around to Guardini here a little bit. You know that that Guardini is influencing is has has his hand on the scale of Vatican II, particularly in the liturgical movement, and his criticism was that you know a lot about what church, particularly then, was was kind of cold and not and the and the leaders of the church were not expressing expressing uh, their their faith in a way that drew others to them and 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 to kind of have some sort of uh, they were let's just say they were maybe going by rote through through the liturgy and he has an experience in in uh, palermo at a church a catholic church there and he he sees these people uh, you know being drawn into worship and and giving themselves over and i think that helped the Vatican II movement um, and, and to have re reforms within the liturgy, liturgical liturgy that that helped them, of which I think Rahner is saying, saying, yes, that worship is about an experience, you know, not just a process of going through and kind of saying, okay, I've I've uh, checked this box off this week and I'm I'm okay. I've kind of washed away my sins again, and now I'm okay, and uh, my salvation is secure. Instead, Rahner and 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 I think and 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 this plays out in multiple religions. It is it's it's the religious experience, it's the spiritual experience that people have that move that can move mountains, but that can move people. And I think, I think. Peter of of all the people you know you look at Peter as as the either the best student or the number one disciple you know kind of aide de camp to Jesus the, the his right hand person or we look at Peter as somebody who has had gone through the heights and lows of faith and has come away with some wisdom and that wisdom really is is this sense of of we are we we can grow and it's but it's not all where it, it's not all firm and uh, and set and set and it's not just so kind of black and white so Rahner wants to you know Rahner's saying it's about a mystical experience I think Peter would say the same thing yes it's about having an experience that's certainly what he witnessed at Cornelius's house and so I think that that's for the future, I think a lot of churches have lost that sense of kind of dry of of worship as an experience or an encounter, yeah. and I think that that's I think that that's what what we're we I think that's what Rana was saying. Hey, if we don't recapture that, we're going to lose a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. These mountains need to move within ourselves, right? In a lot of ways, I mean, that kind of faith. And that seems especially important given where we are, you know, um, in our in our social moment. So this is, you know, 2024. There's going to be an election later in the year. It's going to be a long year, but I'm just not looking forward to the public airwaves uh, much this year. I'm going to quote you in your book um, here uh, toward the end of your book. You write that um, people across the world have become more intolerant of differing opinions. Morgan Kelly of the High Meadows Inter Environmental Institute at Princeton observes, much like an over-exploited ecosystem, the increasingly polarized political landscape in the United States and much of the world is experiencing a catastrophic loss of diversity that threatens the resilience not only of democracy, 
but also of society, according to a series of new studies that examine political polarization, et cetera, et cetera. Then you write, polarization dampens people's ability to change their views, leading to entrenchment and increased strife within their communities. Rather than allowing for agency, those with differing outlooks intimidate and vilify others with dissenting opinions. And then you say, really crucially, metanoia is wholly different. Unlike humans, God tolerates opposition and permits resistance. I guess what I want to ask you about is to comment on that. I think it's such an important passage, Bob, and it's super timely for where we are right now uh, in this moment and this year. Um, the polarizing tribal voices are likely to grow shriller this year, right, as the year proceeds. Where do you place your hope? Um, do you hope that more people will come to realize the benefits of mystical theology, right, of trying to cultivate a relationship with God? Or do you hope that the resources of this kind of theology can help those who do try to cultivate such a relationship, as few as they may be, to endure the present-day rancor of our political sphere? Where do you put it? Is the hope in larger groups or in the resilience felt by those in smaller numbers? Yeah, I mean, the way you cast it there is you know, larger groups or smaller groups, some kind of thing. I, I, I lean toward, you know, the, it's the smaller group, uh, the smaller group, you know, that's a, that's me kind of as a as another as another human kind of saying, OK, you know, kind of, OK, it, it's um, the tribalism isn't help, you know, isn't helping in that sense. And and, you know, people are feeling kind of pulled in directions as opposed to being able to to behold and to consider and and then to just you know to consider what they've seen and then to make a change a decision based on that it feels very led and and i think god as a, as a supremely intelligent being can hold multiple viewpoints at the same time and i think that that's an expression when we look at ourselves as as the the sign of an of intelligence is to be able to hold multiple viewpoints at the same time and to be able to carry those forward in the complexity of it right and so i think in our time um and, and i'm no different you know kind of my struggles of kind of figuring out what's what's you know how to cope with what is coming is is i put my hope in god because i don't see I don't. I don't have as much trust in in human humans or human leaders these days. That that it's it's we're crashing into each other in ways that are very difficult. And so, you know, the the institution institutional religions may not you know be the place for for most everyone, but there is a sense of can we at the bottom sense of say what is it that is greater than myself greater than my tribe or greater than my community that I can hold hold as most important and I do think that that's the divine yeah me too it reminds me of the the line from that song a uh, song by sting like 30 years ago he says uh I, 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 um, I lost my belief in our politicians. They all seem like game show hosts to me, which <laughs> increasingly, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, game show hosts, reality TV show, whatever, right? It's just, yeah. this, is, this right. is our moment. And, and, and finding the resources, not only to sort of uh, remain hopeful, but to remain, um, I think, 
charitable toward others this year is going to be especially important. And I appreciate the, the, the ways you turn our attention to how it is that we, and through Peter, but also through this religious practices, how we can um, cultivate these kinds of sensibilities, this kind of attentiveness to God in our own practices. Bob, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to share some time with you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Starley Pratt. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.